0: Our scripture reading tonight comes from John chapter 4. John chapter 4, I will begin in verse 27 and continue through verse 42. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pots, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world." grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word once again this evening, I pray that by your spirit you would prepare our hearts to receive it, that we would uh, know this great and powerful truth of your harvest that is being prepared and brought in, and that we would be faithful laborers in that harvest. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Last week in John, we saw a scene play out with Jesus and this Samaritan woman in Sychar of Samaria, what appeared to be a routine stop for food and water on Jesus and his disciples' journey towards Galilee, became something much more significant because of Jesus' encounter with this woman of ill repute at the well. Now, under the social customs of that day, it would have been very odd for Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, to have any kind of conversation with such a woman, any Samaritan, much less a Samaritan, with her kind of standing and reputation. But not only does Jesus have a conversation— It ends up being a conversation packed with great spiritual importance. Jesus, who had previously concealed himself from the Pharisees in Judea, he had left there so that they would not uh, know too much about him and conspire to put him to death. He then made a full revelation of himself to this woman in Sychar, declaring that he was the giver of living water and that he was the Messiah. And he proved it by revealing that though he had never met her before, he knew everything about her. Now, what was the purpose of all of this? Well, one purpose was, of course, to teach concerning himself and providentially for John to record it so that we would learn these remarkable and vital truths concerning Christ. It was part of it to mend relations with the Samaritans, maybe, maybe, But more likely, it seems that Jesus is interested in removing the sort of things that constituted that distinction in the first place. Was one purpose in bringing this woman to faith? That certainly seems to be a part of it. But Jesus seems intent on bringing in a harvest of souls, not just of this one woman, but among many of the Samaritans in Sychar. Not only this, but he is going to teach his disciples and teach us concerning his ways and purposes in redemption. So we will look at this harvest of the Samaritans and Jesus' teaching about it in three points this evening. First, we see wonder in verses 27 through 30. What transpired before with Jesus and this Samaritan woman brings a reaction. And second, we see work in verses 31 through 38. Jesus teaches his disciples concerning what has happened and what that means for them. And then third and finally, we get a witness in verses 39 through 42. This commission to work is put into practice among the Samaritans and later will be among others. So we have wonder, work, and witness. And first we see wonder in verses 27 through 30. We actually see two instances of wonder. On the one hand, we see wonder on the part of Jesus' disciples, who at this point return to the well with the food that they had gone into the city to buy. When they come back, they are surprised to see that Jesus has been talking to this Samaritan woman. For they, like Jesus, are Jews, and they recognize the social taboo of such interactions. However, while they think about this, are concerned about this in their own minds, no one says anything at this point. But Jesus knows their hearts. Often in Jesus' ministry, we see that his disciples think things or say things where Jesus can't hear them. But given how Jesus knows what's in the hearts of all men, including his disciples, he knows where the teachable moments are. He knows what they're thinking, and he's going to talk to them about it anyway. Jesus' disciples probably rather reasonably thought they were just passing through Sychar on their way to Galilee. But God is orchestrating a greater work that is to be done there. Now, part of these concerns the disciples held in their minds was probably some concern for ceremonial observance. The Samaritans were thought to be unclean, and associating with them brought uncleanness. Perhaps they were marveling that Jesus would choose to have anything to do with a woman of this sort, not only a Samaritan, but a woman of ill repute. But John Calvin here commenting on this text, he makes a very good point. They think low of this woman. They think, well, why would Jesus be talking to her? But do they think about themselves? I mean, they were unimpressive Galileans, and yet they had been given a place of honor and privilege alongside their Lord. On what grounds should they be looking down on anyone else? But second, we also see the Samaritan woman's wonder at what has just occurred. This discussion with this mysterious Jewish prophet. We see that she has been clearly gripped as she abandons her previous concern, her previous purposes. She was there to draw water in the middle of the day because she did not have a good reputation and did not want to be seen or have to talk to anyone. And yet we see two signs that show that she is suddenly not interested in any of that anymore. First, she leaves her water bucket there. Her whole point in coming out to the well was to get water, but she doesn't even remember or bother to do that anymore. But then second, she goes back to town, and rather than not desiring to be seen or heard or spoken to, she's now telling everyone about this man at the well and asking them to come see him. She's not even shy about mentioning that Jesus told her all the things that she ever did, which was certainly a checkered and rather embarrassing and publicly scandalous history. What would it take for someone to go around town reminding people of something like that? But Jesus' arrival and his activity has caused human conventions to be thrown out the window. Something of far greater urgency and far greater importance has come. Everything else must stand aside. And we see that this woman's testimony is effective. In verse 30, the men of the city listen to her and come out to the well. But in the meanwhile, while this rounding up of the Samaritans is going on, Jesus is teaching his disciples about what all this means. And this brings us to our second point. After wonder, we see a work in verses 31 through 38. While this woman is in the city seeking people to come and see and hear Jesus, Jesus takes this opportunity to speak to his disciples. Now the conversation begins routinely enough. Having retrieved the food from the city, the disciples tell Jesus to eat some. Now what will unfold here is a conversation that is in some way similar to the discussion Jesus had just had with the Samaritan woman. The disciples were concerned with a basic temporal need, food, just as the woman was concerned with water. But Jesus is going to use this most basic and mundane thing to teach his disciples vital truths about himself and about spiritual things. In verse 32, Jesus responds to the disciples' request that he eat with this. He says, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So just as Jesus had used water, the most basic need of temporal life, to teach of the spiritual nourishment and sustenance he provides, he does the same here with food. The disciples fail to understand this at first. When Jesus says he has food, they think he's talking about literal food that he has acquired and eaten or is about to eat. Now, you can't blame the disciples for being concerned with food. The first century was a time where food was a constant need and concern. In our age, we don't really know what it's like to deal with famine and hunger and starvation. Even in the worst of times, we probably all have a decent supply of some sort of food at home, and if we don't, we could walk into any grocery store and have plentiful food of some sort at a price we can afford. We have all sorts of technology and invention and innovation in how we produce food that has allowed us to live in a, in a world and in a nation where food isn't really something we have to worry about all that much. We probably know where our next meal is coming from. And even the poor in our day have many ways to get access to food. But this was far from the case in the first century. Most people were employed in some kind of food production, be it farming or animal husbandry, or in the case of some of Jesus' disciples, fishing. But there was no refrigeration, no machinery, limits on technology, Limits on water, no tractors, no combines, anything of that sort. Food supplies were often subject to famine. Seasons, even years at a time, where crops wouldn't grow, the animals would die, where the fish couldn't be caught. And so in many times and places, the first century was a time of perpetual hunger. If you had food, it might not be enough. And in any case, it would probably be something you were always thinking about. You'd be wondering if you had enough food and where you would get food from next. This is reflected in the Gospels, where Jesus seems to achieve his peak popularity, get the greatest crowds of followers and greatest interest, when he does his miracles of feeding, when he feeds 5,000 men and their families in one case and 4,000 in another. Someone who can provide food in that day was going to be popular. In fact, those were the times where the people were ready to take him away and make him king. Who cares about his positions or policies? If he can give us food, he's the kind of ruler we want. It was a different world back then. But all this to say, we can't really blame the disciples for being concerned about food. But Jesus is after something else. He wants to teach the disciples concerning food for the soul. In verse 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. So Christ is acting according to his Father's will. In eternity past, before the foundation of the earth, there was a pact, an agreement, often referred to as a covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to elect and redeem and save a particular people. And so Christ has been sent to earth by the Father to complete that work. That work that Christ must do consists in his obedience. His active obedience, whereby he fulfills the law perfectly on behalf of sinners, and his passive obedience, whereby he suffers pain and sorrow and misery and death, to pay the penalty for sin and to turn away the wrath of God from sinners. While the disciples and other people of the day were preoccupied with food, Jesus' preoccupation, the thing he lived for, the thing that most motivated him, was doing the Father's will for the salvation of his people. In verse 35, Jesus borrows from a popular saying of that day, there are still four months, and then comes the harvest. It was well known in the time of that day that from the time of planting to the time of harvest would be approximately four months. It even becomes something of a parable for patience. Apparently, this area of Samaria was well known for growing a type of corn. We don't know what time of year Jesus and his disciples came to Sicar. It may be that the harvest was still four months away, that they had come in the spring. But though this is not the season of the corn harvest, there is a harvest of another kind that Jesus has come to bring, a harvest of souls in an unlikely place among these Samaritans who remember in the eyes of the Jews were these treasonous half-breeds who no one was to associate with. And Jesus says that the fields are already white, the harvest. The crop is ready to come in. Although the disciples thought that they were on a routine supply stop in Sychar, Jesus knows that he has come to this place at this time so that salvation would go forth to the Samaritans. At the time of a harvest, there is often an employing of laborers. In the first century, in the absence of machinery, corn, or any other crops had to be harvested by hand. Jesus uses this for his analogy in verse 36, and he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Now what does he mean here? Some take this talk of wages to mean that we earn a reward from God for doing what is right that we are doing some sort of meritorious works that earn God's favor. That would be, for instance, what Roman Catholicism teaches, that we can do good works and tap into the treasury of merit and earn favor from God, maybe even shorten our time in purgatory by doing work for him. But this is precluded by something Jesus teaches elsewhere in Luke 17.10. He says, so likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, so when we've done everything that God requires of us, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. We cannot earn or merit anything from God. All we have from him is a gift of grace. So the wages, the reward Is the joy of seeing others brought to eternal life. And we also see here in this teaching a concept, an illustration that Jesus frequently uses, one of sowing and of reaping. It may be that those who bring the truth of the gospel to a person for the first time may never see any fruit from it. There may be no further opportunities, there may be no further fruit. But just as a sower plants a seed, it may take a long time for a crop to grow, if it grows at all. Sometimes the seed of the gospel is planted. It may take months, it may take years, it may take decades to bear fruit. This is something that should give us hope as we witness to our friends and family who do not believe. We may not see fruit now. We may not see salvation now. But we may just be the ones who plant or the ones who water for a harvest that comes later. And we will be able to rejoice when it does, if not on this earth, then in heaven. Those who sow early and those who harvest late can rejoice together in the work of God done in bringing in the harvest in bringing in his people to salvation. That is the wages the joy of eternal life coming to people around us. We will rejoice in heaven with those who plant and those who water and those who harvest and those who are harvested. In verse 38, Jesus tells the disciples what this all means for them. He has sent them to reap, to harvest that for which they have not labored. Jesus has through his appointed means, through the testimony of this Samaritan woman already prepared the people of Sychar to be harvested, to hear the gospel and repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And so he and his disciples will now reap what has been sown. And this brings us to our final point. After wonder and work, we come to witness in verses 39 through 42. We see that the witness of the woman leads to this harvest in Samaria. Because she goes and tells the people of the city, we read that many of the Samaritans believe in Christ. The harvest comes in one of the most unlikely places through some of the most unlikely means. We had a city of the Samaritans, a group of people that for the custom of the day, Jesus and his disciples should not have even been talking to. But Not only does Jesus talk to a Samaritan, he talks to a woman of ill repute, a serial adulteress, and through her testimony, life and salvation come to the city. Once others of the Samaritans meet Jesus, they ask him to stay with them in verse 40, and he does for a couple of days. We read that many more believe not only because of the woman's testimony, but because of Jesus' own words, his own teaching. He is willing, even as the social customs of the day would have prevented such mingling with Samaritans to stay and teach for the sake of the gospel. See, Jesus is creating a new people, a new kingdom, a new world, where the things that previously divided Jews and Samaritans no longer matter. What we see here early in Jesus' ministry is just a small taste of what's to come. And it is really quite remarkable to think about how all this has come to be. This was supposed to be a routine food and drink stop on the way to Galilee. It has turned into a revival where many of the Samaritans, formerly outsiders and strangers are now coming to know God in droves. This would be kind of like if you or if I were on a trip on our way to somewhere far away, pull off the interstate into a truck stop for a hot dog and a Coke and talk to one person, and from that one person comes a revival, a mass conversion in whatever town this is we've stopped in. That's the sort of scene that unfolds in Sychar. We see God's power and sovereignty demonstrated through the means that he uses to accomplish his purposes. Did God send powerful miracles and signs from heaven or the best scholars and debaters to Sychar? No. He uses a woman who providentially was at the well at a strange time of day when Jesus and his his disciples were just seemingly passing through. So much in our day is made of evangelism strategy, many churches and denominations focus all these great efforts and trying to come up with these new ways to take the gospel to the lost, and this is not to say that this is a bad thing. By all means, we should be looking for ways to take the gospel to people. But often the means that God uses to bring the gospel to people is simply being faithful in the ordinary things. Who knows if one conversation with one person might be the means by which salvation comes not only to that person, but a whole group of people or even a whole city. We see and talk and come across so many people, maybe just one time in our lives. What if we trusted in God's word and will enough to think that Even perhaps in just that one time, God's Spirit might move someone to repentance and faith. It's obviously not guaranteed, as we've already seen some plant, some water, and we never know where in the process we fall. We never know where and for whom God's Spirit is going to move. Maybe in your life, something so simple as what we see here, maybe telling people to come here to hear the gospel, to come where Jesus is and to hear his words of life. Maybe that's what it takes. But in verse 42, we see just how great of a work has been done among these Samaritans. The Samaritans who the woman had spoken to initially, they come back to her and they say, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and know that he is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So what started as this woman talking about this mysterious traveler who told her everything about her is now many in this city believing with true faith in Jesus Christ and knowing that he is the Savior of the world. The Savior that was hidden from the Pharisees is revealed in full to these Samaritan outsiders. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong. So what are we to do with this text? What does it have for us? Well, first and foremost, the call given to us, just as it was given to the Samaritans, is to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Jesus came to do the work of His Father, which was to fulfill all righteousness and redeem a people for His name. Perhaps you're here tonight and you have not heard or not believed this Gospel. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. You will only be delivered from your sins if His perfect righteousness is your righteousness. And so repent of your sins believe in Jesus Christ, and receive life and salvation today. Perhaps you're here tonight and struggling with the difficult reality that though you have hoped and prayed and spoken of Christ to people you know and love, they do not believe. Well, trust in God that he will bring the harvest by his means in his time. Continue to pray Continue to speak the truth as you are able, and who knows if you are the planter or the waterer or even there for the harvest in God's plan. God knows, and he will bring in all of those who are his own. Perhaps you are here tonight and you have not yet really begun to bear witness to Christ. Well, this text shows that a little can go a long way. Pray and seek out opportunities to testify to Christ in the world around you so that others may be brought in with this harvest of people for his name. Maybe simply by asking people to come here, the gospel here, I can be one means that God uses. And let us all together thank our God and give him the glory and rejoice in the harvest when it comes. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that we have heard. We thank you for the harvest that you are doing in this world, that you were doing that day in Samaria and that you continue to do even among us, even in this area around us and around the whole world even now. I pray that we would all be faithful to be laborers towards this harvest, that as you have called each of us, that we might plant, that we might water, that we might be faithful in the ordinary tasks and be looking for and be using the opportunities you give us to proclaim your name. And I pray that we would all believe you and trust in you and have confidence in Christ, for he is our salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.